See, and we're going to come to the objection again, but I can just feel, I mean, in my formerly reformed bones, I I can just feel the objection. Dry bones, according to Ezekiel. Yeah. Yeah. I can just feel the objection rising. Hello and welcome to another even-handed episode Amen. of On the Journey with Matt Swaim and Ken Hensley. I being Matt Swaim, my colleague being Ken Hensley, me, Nazarene, Free Methodist, a few other things, and then I became Catholic. Ken, Baptist pastor, then he became Catholic. If you want to know why in the world two people like us would end up where we have ended up, then this episode is for you. Check us out at the Coming Home Network, chnetwork.org, to find more episodes of On the Journey and lots and lots of other resources from us and other people who have made the journey that we're discussing today. Ken, are you ready to talk more about sola fide and specifically imputation? Yes, and in an even-handed manner. Well, good, because I hope. we talked about amputation with Procrustes and his iron bed a couple of episodes ago. Today, we're zeroing in more on this concept of imputation. So let's get started. Yeah, we talked about amputation, and then the very next week, I believe we were talking about... Im- impalement. Im- impalement, and uh, there's nothing like that this week, but there is zeroing in, as you as you said. You know, actually, I, I'm fully aware that we're off in the weeds a bit now, you know, because I'm focusing in on the issue of, of, um, of legal imputation which many, many listening might just be fully scratching their heads This is over. the part of the Law and Order episode where people are like, uh, okay, I don't know what they're saying, but I think I know who's guilty. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's about right. That's about right. But the, the thing is, this issue, this idea is at the heart of the classic Reformed, uh, Protestant Reformed doctrine of justification. And in fact, I would argue, and I will argue, not today so much, but I will argue that this is the key issue that the legal imputation of righteousness is the key issue that 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 defines the difference between the Catholic and Protestant views of of salvation of justification, and uh, the key issue that drove me out in the end. But anyway, we're in the weeds and we're in the details. Okay, last week we did zero in on what is what amounts to the key Old Testament passage that is understood by Protestants as teaching this doctrine of justification, or this doctrine of imputation. Genesis 15, 6, where we read, And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, reckoned it to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. Protestants read this as saying that when Abraham believed in the Lord, God legally credited to Abraham's account righteousness. It's like Abraham walked up to the counter at Chuck E. Cheese and said, here are all my tickets from skee-ball, and it was legally credited to his account. Not quite, except because Abraham didn't earn those tickets, right? Abraham just believed. No, in fact, in fact... Protestants listening would say, "Hey, you're de- you're describing the Catholic view. You come up with I your tickets it. and you trade in your tickets that you've earned." They're saying, "Abraham, your tickets are no good here. What do you want yeah. from behind the counter?" Right, right, right. Okay, so uh, here's one uh, Protestant New Testament scholar commenting on this. Genesis fifteen six states, "And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, 
and he, that is the Lord, counted to him for righteousness, counted it to him for righteousness. God grants righteousness to Abraham as a free gift. It is clear that when Abraham was justified by faith, the righteousness which was reckoned or charged to his account, that's how he understands it, was a righteousness not his own, but that of another, namely the righteousness of Christ. Thus, justification is understood in forensic terms, in legal terms, as the transfer of righteousness from Christ's account to the account of the one who has faith. And therefore, this becomes very important too, justification is understood as something that takes place and is completed at the beginning of the Christian life. You reach out to Christ in faith, and boom, it's done. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are saved, past tense. Luther said it like this, Christ has suffered for our sins and fulfilled the law for us. We have only to believe in him, and by believing in him, take hold, as it were, of his merits and put them on like a cloak. If we do that, although imperfect and unholy, we shall be saved and considered just. You see, all this is involved. We shall be saved, past tense, and considered just, not for anything that God made us, not for regeneration or transformation or sanctification, but for the righteousness of Christ. He, he makes it clear, we will be considered just, not because of anything that God is doing in us, regenerating us, giving us a spirit, changing us, making us, you know, remolding us into the image of Christ, but purely and solely because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been taken and put on like a cloak that we are wearing. It's been legally credited to us, okay? We, we've defined that a number of times, but in each episode, I have to say it again, because this is sort of where we're coming from. Now, I can't go back today and rehearse last week's episode, but, but, but simply to remind our hearers that in that episode, you and I walked carefully through four reasons for concluding that this cannot be the correct interpretation of Genesis 15.6. And I can only encourage uh, those of you watching or listening to go back and listen to that episode, all right? If you want to understand what I'm saying there. What I want to do today, though, is I want to look further into what the Old Testament can teach us. We're going to stay in the Old Testament one more time about this subject. Because as it turns out, Matt, there are a good handful of passages in the Old Testament that pretty much come out and tell us clearly what God intends to do to solve the problem of human sin. And never in any one of these passages do we find him talking about legal imputation. And we need to, from the beginning, say we know that Christ came to establish a new covenant. So uh, there are going to be people who immediately object and say, why are you talking about the Old Testament at all? except that Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So we need to know what law Christ was fulfilling yes. in order to understand what he's doing. And so. also, another reason for wanting to look in the Old Testament is because it's in the Old Testament that God, speaking through his prophets, looks forward to the New, the new Covenant and describes what he's going to do. And when so Paul says all Scripture at. is God-breathed, he's talking about, among other things, the Old Testament. Yes. So yes. we got to read it and figure okay, out what so it says. So several points we're going to look at. The first is a theme, not a, a specific passage. And that is, there's the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, which is deep and varied, and I don't want to go into it in detail, but it speaks to us of the need for atonement for sins to be made, resulting 
not in the imputation of righteousness, but in the forgiveness of sins. That's what I want to go into for a moment. You read the book of Leviticus. People who have tried to read through the Bible, they get to Leviticus, first six, seven, eight, ten chapters. That's the end of it, right? They're like, they said, it says here yeah. not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I think I'm done here. Yeah, right? yes, I think I'm done for now. Okay, but in the book of Leviticus, we can read in mesmerizing detail, detail that will make the ears of all who hear it tingle, really, about all the various sacrifices that the people of Israel were commanded to make. Burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. There were morning and evening sacrifices every single day of the week. There were three annual feasts in which thousands of sacrifices were made. There was the annual Day of Atonement in which sacrifice was made for the entire nation. Uh, completely apart from all this, all the sacrifices and offerings that were brought by the people to be offered for their sins, for guilt, as I said, for peace offerings and whatnot. And I, I just want to sum it up because in short, the Old Testament is filled with the accounts of sacrifices being offered. And what I want to point out here is simply that never, ever is there anything said about these sacrifices resulting in righteousness being legally transferred or credited or imputed to the sinner bringing the sacrifice. Never. Instead, in every single case, very basic pattern we see. A, sin is confessed and the sacrifice for sin is offered, making atonement. B, the Lord accepts the sacrifice and the sinner is forgiven. What we find is forgiveness. We don't find a hint of legal crediting of righteousness in the sacrificial system. Throughout the Old Testament, God is presented to us as a God who is merciful and kind and who will forgive the sin of those who trust in him and do what he commands. And in this case, trusting him and doing what he commands means bringing the offering, bringing the so, offerings to be sacrificed. So while you're saying that we can find all kinds of things in Leviticus and elsewhere about the Day of Atonement, we can't really find anything about the Day of Imputation. No, or the week, or the, or, or the f festival, or anything like the festival that. Festival of Imputations. No, it's not in there. No. It's not in there. No. It's forgiveness, yeah, not credit. Yeah, it, if you look at the sacrificial system, you see that atonement needs to be made for sin, and you see that forgiveness results. Atonement is made, forgiveness results. Okay, second, I want to look at a passage that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where we read, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That's, that's we'll come back to that, but that is such a powerful phrase in my mind now. God is going to circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that, in order that, you may live. Now, allow me for a moment to set the context of this, though. We're in the book of Deuteronomy. The Israelites are in the plains of Moab, preparing to cross over the Jordan River into the land of promise. Moses has reminded them several times in Deuteronomy, which is the entire book are the speeches of Moses to these people. He's reminded them of the kind of God they're dealing with. For instance, Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is the kind of God they're dealing with. And he's also made it clear what God requires of them. 
and I'm reading now from Deuteronomy chapter 30, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you will perish. That sounds to me a lot like a damning systems of works righteousness, you know, kind of yeah. language, but, uh, but keep going. But it's not. Yeah. Keep, keep going. Okay. Moses knows what's going to happen. Okay. Moses knows that God's people are not going to obey the commandments. They're not going to love the Lord, their God with all their heart, and they're not going to keep his commandments. He knows their hearts are going to turn away to serve foreign gods, idols, and that they're going to reap the terrible consequences of this disobedience. And uh, um, parenthetically, for the gory details, I invite all of our hearers to read the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And they and you, are gory. And you, yeah, and you, you, so we're talking like it. if you thought Phineas and the spear was bad last week. I mean, there's some gory stuff. Yeah, it goes downhill. Especially from there. in Judges. <laughs> Ooh, judges it goes, is rough. It goes downhill. Okay, but Moses knows all this. And the thing about Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the passage that we that we just read, is that in this passage, Moses, knowing what's going to happen to the people, he looks far into the future, and as a prophet of God, Moses speaks of what God is going to one day do to save his people, Okay, something that God is going to one day in the future, and he's referring to when the new covenant is made without saying it here, okay? What God is going to do to save his people, and what does he say? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live in order that you may live. God will circumcise your heart in order that. So, I mean, line these things up. Here's who God is, he says. He's a God kind and forgiving, you know, forgiving the sins of those who love him and keep his commandments. Then he says to the people, therefore, go into the land and love the Lord and keep his commandments and you will live. But then knowing that they won't, he says, you know what? God's going to do something one day. God's going to change your hearts so that you will love him in order that you may live. So summing up, in the sacrificial system, we see the need for atonement and we see the forgiveness of sins. Here we see God's intention to change his people from the inside out, circumcise their hearts, so that they might love the Lord their God with all their heart, in order that they might live. How is God planning to deal with the problem of his people's inability to love him and keep his commandments and live? Is he going to legally credit righteousness to them? I mean, again, you know, I mean, theoretically, this could be true. This could be revealed in the New Testament and completely hidden in the Old Testament. I'm just saying there's not a hint of it in the passages. When we, when we ask the question, how is God planning to deal with this problem of his people's, the problem of his people's inability to love him, keep his commandments so that they might live? The answer we get is he will make atonement for sins. He will forgive his people for their sins. And he will change them. From the inside, he will make them the kind of people, the sort of people who can, if you will, can fulfill the law and live. Well, it seems to me 
and again, I don't want to be a totally cynical Wesleyan Arminian in all this, but the way that when you hear the, the how it's been described uh, as what God wants for his people and the way that Moses foresees that it will be for God's people, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like God is saying, I want to make you more like me. I want to circ- I want to change, as you say, mm-hmm. you from the inside. And it seems to me the reform film system of, of thought sounds more like, all right, you guys are bad. I can't get you to do anything that I want. So as a result, I've created this voucher system. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's the way it sometimes feels um, when you read Reformed theology as an outsider. But I know that's not how Reformed people think about it. To a person who no. buys into Reformed theology, this is like a really beautiful thing to them. Here's what I'm going to do. When, when we get to the end of this episode, I, I'm going to bring up a, a major objection that is made to the Catholic point of view. And, and this is where we'll go directly into the answer to what you're raising right now about about how the, the Reformed see this, okay, and why they see the need for imputation, for legal imputation, okay? So let's do that. Let, let, let's hold off on that. Okay, right, I'm, another I'm key excited. passage. Yeah. Okay, another key passage is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Okay, now here the Lord, he's speaking to his people during their exile in Babylon. So this is after Moses sends them across the Jordan into the land, after the horror show of um, Joshua, Judges, as you mentioned, Samuel and Kings, to where they have failed to love the Lord their God, the people of Israel, they have failed to keep the commandments, and they have been sent away into exile in Babylon. And in exile, the Lord speaks through Ezekiel, and he looks forward again to this new covenant that's going to be instituted, and he describes in some detail what he intends to do. So we get another shot now, uh, really, of asking the question, so what are you going to do? How are you going to fix things, God? Here's what Ezekiel, or what the Lord says through Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your impurities, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take out your heart of flesh, or excuse me, I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone. Wow, that that heart of stone that won't obey. And I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you, move you, to walk in my statutes and to be careful to observe my ordinances. And again, there's just simply nothing here. I mean, here's, here's where the Lord steps in through Ezekiel and says, look, I know things are bad. You have sinned, you have fallen, you've been taken away into exile, but I promise you, one day I'm going to act. And when I act, this is what I'm going to do. And there's nothing here about legal imputation, crediting, transfer of righteousness. When the Lord institutes the new covenant in Christ, it's going to be about imparting righteousness to his people, washing them, removing hearts of stone that can't obey, giving them hearts of flesh, which presumably can obey putting his spirit within them and moving them to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments in order that they might live. In short, again, Matt, the new covenant, in the new covenant, God is going to give his people the ability to do what the law requires. I guess that's a better way of saying it. So the pattern is not, the law requires you to love God and keep his commandments in order that you might live. You can't do it, so God is going to legally credit to you as though you had done it. In, instead, what the new covenant is promising is because you can't do it, God's going to give you the ability to do it. 
He's going to change you and make you the kind of people who can keep God's law, love him with all your heart, all your soul, and live. And, and through grace, right? As we'll understand uh, as Entirely, we Entirely, yeah. Discuss. I, I will wash you clean. I will remove your your stony heart. I this will give you This is a passage we were talking about when yeah. you and I were having uh, extended discussions on baptism and how it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. This yes. passage from Ezekiel thirty six is one of the key ones to understand. Yes, yes. What we're, what we believe about baptism and what it is and what it does. See, and we're going to come to the objection again, but I can just feel. I mean, in my formerly reformed bones. <laughs> I, I can just feel the objection. Dry bones, according to Ezekiel. Yeah. Yeah. I can just feel the objection rising. You know, like what? God is going to forgive our sins and then he's going to begin to change us. And that is sufficient basis for him to accept us. Are you kidding me? Okay. One more passage from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Okay. In this passage, we have the most direct, the most complete statement in the entire Old Testament of what God plans to do when he makes a new covenant with his people, okay? This is the the most direct, and it's the most complete statement that there is in the Old Testament. What is God going to do when he makes this new covenant to fix the situation that is the problem that arises from the fact that his people are unable to keep his law, and they don't? Will he be crediting righteousness to the accounts of his people again? Will God be when the new covenant comes, will he be clothing his people in an alien righteousness, you know, a righteousness extra nos from the outside, Christ's righteousness credited to them? This is uh, how I was pejoratively referring to this idea as, you know, sneaking on, sneaking into heaven in a Jesus costume, right? <laughs> this is how it looks yeah, to yeah. us as outsiders, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's how it could look. Yeah, that's how it could look. Okay, this is what Jeremiah says, or what the Lord says through Jeremiah. Here's his answer. What is, what's God going to do? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their forefathers when I took them by hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So, okay, great. So how exactly, thank, he's setting it up beautifully, how exactly will this new covenant differ from the old covenant which they broke? How exactly will it differ? What will the difference be? This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And again, what do we see here? Two things. We see sins being forgiven. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And we see God enabling his people to do what the Old Covenant could not enable them to do. The Old Covenant law was written on tablets of stone. In other words, when the New Covenant is instituted, God is saying, When the new covenant is instituted, I will write these laws upon the hearts of my people. Again, it's all about forgiveness, and it's all about God imparting righteousness by changing us and making us the kind of people who can keep his law and live. But isn't that consistent with what Jesus teaches 
you know, when when he says things like, you have heard it said, you know, thou shalt not kill, but I'm going to take this law that you have on a stone tablet, and I'm going to get it into your heart, right? I'm going to say, mm-hmm. whoever is angry with his brother has committed murder in his heart. I mean, he's taking, you know, rather than making it more of an external thing where God just sort of gives you the pass and lets you through, he makes it harder in some ways, or he lets you know that it was harder than you thought it was, is probably a better way of putting it. Um, it goes more and more mm-hmm. to the heart, uh, the way that Jesus is is describing it. Uh, same thing with adultery and and lust. Um, same thing with all kinds of things uh, that Jesus and that's is exactly up in the why, ante. And, and that's exactly why the Reformed theologian will say, Matt, that's why we have to have the perfect righteousness of Christ. Because nobody can do that, right? Because Jesus it just upped the ante. He intensified what the law demands, and it can't be done. Okay. Now, in our next episode, we're going to move into the New Testament and begin looking at justification and imputation in the New Testament. But for now, you know, just sort of a a taste of things to come. In the light of what we have just seen in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, in Ezekiel, and in Jeremiah, I want you to hear something that St. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 because it ties in so well. Okay, in this passage, Paul is summarizing his doctrine of justification, the doctrine he's been developing really in chapters 1 through 7 of Romans. And and listen to what he says, and I'll have a little bit of uh, commentary um, inserted in there too. Okay, listen to what he says. Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Bold statement. Okay, why? Because Christ's perfect righteousness has been legally credited to the believer? Is that why there's no condemnation? Listen to Paul. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Okay, so he seems to be saying, okay, the reason there's no condemnation in Christ is because the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. And then he says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. It sounds just like Jeremiah. The law, which set forth God's standard on tablets of stone, was weakened by the flesh, that is the inability of the fallen sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, to keep it. And he says here, for God has done in Christ, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And now here's the atonement. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, that's the doctrine of the atonement, which we're not going into right now. But 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 he made atonement in Christ. He made atonement for sin. And then here it is. In order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? By legal imputation again? Is that how it's fulfilled in us? In order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. According to Paul, as he sums up his doctrine of justification, the reason there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, I can simplify, the reason there's no condemnation is because in Christ, through the Spirit, we have been set free to walk in the Spirit and thus fulfill the law. Again, he's saying the same thing. His summarization of justification here sounds just like 
Deuteronomy, just like Ezekiel, just like Jeremiah, he says there's no condemnation because in Christ, the Spirit of God has set us free, and now we can keep God's law, and the just requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. Not a word about imputation. Okay. And now let's run right into to that objection I was mentioning, okay? Because one of the primary objections to this entire way of thinking, this very Catholic way of thinking about justification, is to say this. You know, okay, hold on, Ken, and hold on, Matt. Remember, God is perfectly holy, and God demands perfect holiness. Sure, God can forgive our sins. Sure, God can give us new hearts. He can put his spirit within us. You know, he can begin this process of sanctification in our lives, remolding us slowly into the very image of Christ again, sure. But this can't be the basis of God's acceptance of us. This is something that will never even be completed in this life. On the day you die, you're still going to be filled with issues. So this can't be the basis of God's acceptance of us. This is why we must have a perfect righteousness credited to our account in order for God to accept us. Okay, let me read this from Bruce Bickle, who's a Reformed scholar. He states this well. Okay, this is how he puts it. If one is justified by a declaration of God, received by faith alone, that one is declared righteous, then one is declared righteous in Christ the very moment one believes that the person and work of Christ, his righteousness, his perfect life of obedience, is credited to one's account. Conversely, if one is justified by a process of sanctification that is never completed in one's lifetime, essentially the Catholic view, one does not have sufficient basis for acceptance with God. See, that's a key answer to many of the things you were bringing up, Matt, uh, 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 many of the issues you were bringing up. This is it. One does not have sufficient basis for acceptance with God. God, because of his perfect holiness, requires absolute and perfect obedience. Such obedience is only found in the sinless life of Christ. In other words, God cannot accept us unless we have a perfect righteousness. And the only way that we can have a perfect righteousness is for Christ's righteousness. He lived the law perfectly. He lived it, he kept it, and he died in obedience to it. We need to have his righteousness transferred, legally credited to our account. Otherwise, I mean, come on, the beginnings of sanctification in your life and mine, our feeble faith, our feeble stumbling along in the direction of obedience, this cannot provide sufficient basis for God to accept us. Well, you know, Ken, that's the um, that's Catholics the have kind of like a, we have a mechanism that takes care of that theologically for when you progress along the path as far as you can possibly progress, but you still haven't gotten over the hump yet, and then you die. You know, it's called purgatory. Reformed yeah, that's people after don't, you die. They're not, not a big fan of that. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that even as a Wesleyan Arminian, mm-hmm. if somebody would say, well, you must be perfectly holy as God is holy, uh, you know, and then you die, and you're maybe not as holy as you could possibly be, what happens? And you know, there was some sort of mystical moment that we didn't know about and couldn't speak to because none of us had been there that had happened in that intermittent time that would finish the process yeah, for us. God would just finish it at in a miracle. He would just change which you. Is he a, would just finish it. Which is an imperfect but kind of similar description yeah. to purgatory, if you think about it. Okay, now, 
let me walk through my answer to this objection, okay? First of all, it's simply to say, and I say this, Catholics do not believe that the process of sanctification that we are in, and that will never be completed in our lifetime, Catholics do not believe that this forms the, quote, basis for our acceptance with God, unquote. The basis, the basis for our acceptance with God is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay? And that's simple. That's something that we all agree with. Look at the Old Testament sacrificial system again. Atonement is made first, and then forgiveness flows. Okay? So we don't believe that the basis for our acceptance with God is the process of sanctification that is taking place in us. Okay? Secondly, while it is true, totally true, that God is perfectly holy, and it's totally true that no one is going to enter the presence of God ultimately in heaven who has not been made perfectly holy. You're not going to have Ken Hensley, the sinner, just stumbling into heaven and walk, walking around still fill, filled with evil desires. Okay, So God is perfectly holy, and no one is going to enter heaven who has not been made perfectly holy. This idea that is being communicated by Bickle here and the Reformed faith, this idea that God cannot accept us in the present, that God can't accept those who have not been made perfectly righteous in the present, or don't have a perfect righteousness credited to them in the present, is this simply unbiblical, and it's totally false. And that's what I want to just substantiate here quickly. Remember how God is described throughout the Old Testament? God is described as being gracious and kind, forgiving sin, showing mercy to thousands who love him and keep his commandments. Okay? Now, I remember the day when this kind of struck me in a new way, it struck me that these passages can't be saying that God is kind and gracious and shows mercy to those who perfectly love him, or, or those who perfectly keep his commandments, or those who have the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to their, their, their account. Because if that were the case, then what would be the need for mercy? Yeah, you, by definition, it would no longer be mercy, it would be justice. Yeah, I mean... Why would God need to be kind and merciful and gracious to those who love him and keep his commandments if what's being described is perfection there? You know, that's not what it's saying. What those passages are saying, obviously, is that God is merciful and kind to those who, you know, are, are willing to beat their breasts like the man in the temple and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and begin to walk forward in the obedience of faith. God is kind and merciful to them. That's those who love him and keep his commandments, not those who are perfect, and not those who have had a perfect righteousness credited to them. Okay, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was, and I quote, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Okay, Jesus present, presented to the world the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus said it like this, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what that says to me is that Jesus came to reveal the true face of the Father. And the face he revealed is the face of mercy. And so let me kind of illustrate what I'm saying here by taking the story of the prodigal son. Okay, imagine he's heading home. After many years, he's taken his inheritance, he's wasted his inheritance with profligate living, and he's finally, well, like the man in the temple, he's finally said, be merciful to me, a sinner, and he's headed home. Okay. He looks up, his father sees him, 
His father sees him coming toward him. The son comes and falls down before his father, and he says, Father, forgive me. I am not, I, I am not um, worthy to be called your son. Please just let me become a servant, a hired servant in your house. And so now imagine the father says to him, Son, unless you have been credited with a perfect righteousness from God that covers you like snow covering a dunghill, I cannot accept you. Instead, I mean, think about this. Instead, he runs what do out we to read? meet him instead. Yeah, instead, while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him and said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. The idea that God cannot accept Matt Swain in the condition that he's in, and he cannot accept Ken Hensley as I am, that the only way God can accept me is if I have perfect righteousness stamped into my account, is just violated, really, by everything we see in the life of Jesus. This is why Jesus could say to the woman who everybody knew to be a sinner, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is why this man who comes to him stumbling and his feeble faith and says, the best he can say is, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. This is why Jesus could accept him. And this is why Jesus can accept us. And what I'm saying is we have this continuity through the whole Bible because the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God was the same. He's merciful and he's kind to those who love him and keep his commandments. And Jesus is doing the same thing. This is why he can accept us. The more I started to look at Reformed theology, which makes the claim on its face that this is the clear interpretation of Scripture and that the Catholic take on justification, salvation, sanctification is this complicated accrual of man-made traditions and add-ons that make the gospel more complicated than it needs to be. This is why once I started to read what the Catholic Church actually teaches and started to dig into Reformed theology, I thought, Seems to me like the Reformed theology is the one that's complicating things and reversing and adding and subtracting and making things say things that it doesn't look like they say. It seems to me that one of these is really simple, and one of these is really complicated, yeah. and it ain't the Catholic one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it can sound more complicated when you say, okay, let's begin to talk about the channels of grace that God gives us to move us along this path, and you've got the sacraments. It, it can sound that way, but but in its simplicity— it's simply saying, we do not have the ability as the fallen sons of Adam and Eve to love God and keep his commandments in Christ. God has made atonement for sin, and he will forgive us and make us <laughs> into the kind of people who will do it, I mean, who will keep his word, and who will live. And he does it. In fact, when I think about the message of Deuteronomy 30, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, what I hear what I hear Jesus saying to each one of us now is exactly the same thing that he said to the man who had to be carried in a mat, you know, through the roof and lowered down in front of him. Your sins are forgiven. Rise up and walk. There's the two parts, forgiveness and God changing us and making us the kind of people who can love him and keep his commandments. Your sins are forgiven rise up and walk. 
Ken, even in a passage like in Galatians 2, when Paul's saying all kinds of things about the law mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, how he died to the law to live to God. And, you know, if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing. In the middle of the, all that, he says in Galatians 2.20, a verse that only makes sense if you understand that whole new creation thing when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That doesn't sound to me like a guy who just got righteousness credited to his account. It sounds to me like a guy who died and is alive anew in Christ. Like something happened in his heart, not just something that happened to his bank account. It sounds just like that passage in Romans 8 that we read where he says there's no condemnation because the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free. And now the just requirements of the law can be met in me as I walk according to the Spirit. Paul's saying, you know, I've been crucified. I'm a dead man, and I've been raised again. And this is, yeah, the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God. Well, um, it's oh, so much more. I, you know, a lot to this. As as Bon Jovi so would more. say, we're only halfway there. I'm sure there's yeah, more the, we got to discuss. So. Yeah, and and I guess if I can, just off the top of my head, summarize what this episode is all about is simply saying, we saw last week that that key passage about Abraham is not teaching, you know, justification by the, by the imputation of righteousness to Abraham's account by faith alone. And now we've looked at a number of passages from the Old Testament that actually tell us what God's going to do, that actually tell, it describe what God intends to do in the New Covenant, and not one of them deals with legal imputation. They all deal with providing forgiveness for our sins and a change in our lives so that we will love God, so that we will walk in his commandments in order that we might live. It's as though it's as though the, the plan has not changed. We still the plan keep was con- always relationship. The plan Amen. was always relationship. Yeah. All right. Well Ken, what do we got next? We have Another episode. All right. Well, no. stay tuned for that. <laughs> well, we've been going through, I mean, I feel like we've, we've, we've hit so no. many angles of this question of, you We're know, works righteousness new- and the reformed question and the Catholic yeah. question and how it all fits together. Imputation. I feel like there's still people who are probably dissatisfied with how we treated it. And we spent nearly 45 minutes on it, but, um, well, I'm kind of joking. Big- I'm joking when I say another episode because we're going to move into the New Testament to ask the question, what is the evidence for this doctrine of imputation in the New Testament? And then, what, so what is the Catholic view? What is, what is being taught? And we've hinted at some of that today, but we're going to yeah. dig in more deeply yes. next time around. In the meantime, yeah. if you're enjoying On the Journey with Matt and Ken, please subscribe. Please tell your friends to do the same. Um, if you have questions about what you're hearing, if you have uh things from your own experience that you want to relate to the conversation, please leave them in the comments. Please be charitable and merciful uh, to one another. And check us out at chnetwork.org. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thank you again. Talk to you next time around. Bye.